Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 384 of the podcast for September 10th, 2020. Joining me today is Craig Giggy. He's the co-author of the book Six Sigma for Dummies. He's also managing principal and owner of the firm Strategic Productivity. He also has an online course called Truth About Data, which covers statistical process control for business metrics, uh, a topic I love and I've written about in my own book, Measures of Success. So Craig and I have that shared interest in data, statistical methods, and problem solving, even if he comes at it from a Six Sigma perspective, starting from his days back at Motorola, and me from a lean perspective. Now, Craig's had leadership roles, including being the chief operating officer at the company Purple Inc. He was the executive VP of operations at Master Control, and he was the director of operational excellence for Fiji Water. So I hope you enjoy the conversation uh, like I did. You can find links to everything um, I mentioned there and that we talk about in the episode by going to leanblog.org slash 384. Craig, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to have you here on the podcast. Um, you are the, the second of the Four Dummies series authors uh, to be here um, on the podcast. Um, episode 145 was Natalie Sayer. She was co-author yeah. of Lean for Dummies. There, there's, there's some connections or overlap before you introduce yourself. If, if you, oh, if yeah. They're, um, the co-author with Natalie on Lean for Dummies is Bruce Williams, and he also joined me on writing Six Sigma for Dummies and the Six Sigma Workbook for Dummies. So we share a co-author. And when Natalie and Bruce wrote Lean for Dummies, they asked me to do some manuscript review, um, You'll see my name in really small print right in the acknowledgments, but it was a fun, a fun project and a really worthwhile book. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're, we're not going to be exploring um, Six Sigma formally today, but before um, we get into that here, I, I should give you the floor, uh, Craig, and uh, let, let you introduce yourself and maybe, you know, tell the listeners a little bit about your career and, you know, kind of the arc that that's taken. Yeah, it, it has been an arc. Um, Six Sigma and Lean and operations were not things I grew up thinking I was going to get into. <laughs> um, what was, did you want to do then? Sorry, I was an astronaut, you know, or a professional baseball player. But yeah. um, I started off my career as an engineer. I was designing um, cell phone products for Motorola. And this was happened to be the time where they were rolling their Six Sigma initiative out to their full supply chain and then even out to third parties. And so I, a lot of that resonated very deeply with me, just probably with the style I approach work and the things I had learned in my graduate studies. Um, but I started to use that quite extensively in my next jobs, um, helping companies design products that would be high quality right out of the chute. Um, I even started a software company that provided tools for engineers and designers so that they could design products. Um, if you've heard of tolerance stacking, um, that, that was the product. It was a good product, and um, a lot of people even use it today. Um, but over the years, I started to get into operations. Um, I, I saw that as a point of greater leverage than product design. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've come to find that operations is a place where the work 
and the decisions of a company happen that where the, the reality of the company is formed. And so over the years, I've, um, I've gone into a lot of operations now, along the way, you know, I have done a lot of lean six Sigma training. I was one of those that, you know, stood up for four weeks at a time and presented PowerPoint slides. And if you ask me right now, I probably could start doing my presentation by memory and uh, teach you how to be a six Sigma black belt. And, and about uh, a month from now, we'd be done with the instruction. <laughs> but those days are behind us. Uh, the six Sigma for dummies book has helped with that, you know, make it more of a commodity and more uh, leaned out type of training. Um, and then also along the way, I've had a chance to work with a lot of Japanese suppliers. Um, I came into lean through Six Sigma, but I, I greatly appreciate the, the philosophy and, and probably the better platform that lean provides. And so today what I do is I consult with companies. Um, I sometimes take full-time positions, but I help their leadership and their ownership understand the inescapable role that operations plays and how to form those in a way in a way that leads to greater productivity and greater value for customers. Now, I didn't say the word lean mm -hmm. because I sometimes try to avoid that. When people, when you say lean or when you say Kaizen, most people have heard of it and they've, they have an idea in their mind. And so I try to get past those preconceived notions right. and talk about really what they need to do. And so that's where I'm at today. And uh, one of the things that goes along with that is, is data. Um, I see a great need for talking about how to look at data, how to use data. Um, data is just becoming pervasive in the world today. But in spite of that, there's growing problems with how data is used. And so, you know, I've seen your most recent book, Measures of Success, and I, I see it doing, taking people down the same path that I'm trying to do with some of my efforts as well. And um, thanks, thanks for mentioning that. And we'll we'll we'll, we'll talk more about um, SPC and some of the ways that you're helping spread the word about that and uh, and teach people. But I was wondering, you know, can you comment on um, you know how how and why you know data is? I mean, for one, I guess it's a part of every organization. But why why the connections between data and leadership are so important, even if an organization is not formally using Six Sigma as a methodology. Well, data is, is everywhere. I mean, um, it's kind of like cameras. With, with cameras and smartphone cameras, every person on the planet nearly has, you know, a, a camera in their hands. And in today's business world, data is everywhere. And so leaders and managers, um, we've always said, you know, we have to have data-based decisions and data driving our actions. And that people know that, and it makes sense. Um, and especially leaders are now trying to take advantage of the data, the abundance of data that they have. But what I'm seeing is that they're using it in a way that, that probably diminishes their leadership and in some cases can even harm or be dangerous. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we look at even what's going on with the flood of data related to um, the coronavirus, COVID-19 cases. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. You know, we, I, you know, hear people talk about this um, within Lean also, the, 
um, desire to be data-driven, to have data-driven decision-making, but what do you do when you have bad data, unreliable data, or, you know, I think an issue important to each of us is bad analysis yes. of that data. That's a real challenge and a struggle, right? All, all of those, yeah, and um, anyone, whether they're in Six Sigma or any other field, if, any, if you've worked with data, you know that all data have noise, Mm-hmm. So, yeah, whether that's the measurement system, as we can see with the coronavirus data, there's some measurement system noise in there. Right. But data always has some uncertainty around it, or the situation, the context always has some, some uncertainty around it. And what I'm seeing is that the approaches that we've learned through traditional schooling and through MBA programs and through um, just from watching other people do work, the traditional ways of approaching data analysis more often than not lead us to invalid conclusions, which is the harmful part. Right, right. Um, you know, when you talk about that noise in the data, um, some harm comes from overreacting to said noise, like making important business decisions of some type based on a relatively meaningless fluctuation in some sort yeah. of metric. Right. Yeah, can I can I offer an example? Yeah. And I think everybody will feel for this. And I use this example a lot when I talk to people because it everybody can understand this data that I'm going to present. Imagine you had a coin, you take it out of your pocket and you flip it ten times in a row. How many heads are you? Do you think you'll get, Mark? On average, five. <laughs> okay, right. Well, well, that's true. Now, what if you got seven heads? What, what would you do? What would your reaction be? I mean, my reaction would be, well, I mean, that happens. Yes. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't accuse you of having a uh, loaded coin. Right. But what if that was your job? You know, and I came to you and I said, hey, Mark, what happened? You need to go and figure out what happened. Why did you get seven? Right. And so that's an example of what management often does, there's, there's a level of noise in that coin flipping data and everybody has a feel for it. If you get four five or six, even seven heads, it's just normal. But if you got nine heads, you might start to go, okay, wait a second, something, something significant, there's a signal. And so that is that fundamentally, that difference between noise and signal Yep. And both look the same in data. I, that's maybe the wrong way to say it, but to the un, without the right approaches, noise can be confused with signal. And there, there's proven ways over and over again that when you act on noise, thinking that it's a signal, you end up worsening the problem. And that, that's what I find. There's this huge incentive and this cultural norm of, hey, I have to provide a solution. I have to do something. And so people look in the data for something and because they have to do something. And like you said, in a lot of cases, how, how do you deal with that uncertainty? Right. Or when you say they have to do something, they feel like they need to do something. Yes. That's, so that's what I'm trying to say. They're looking, the, they're, they're looking for or demanding um, explanation of a root cause that is literally not there. Right. So answering your question of what did you do differently when you flipped the coin and you got seven heads? The honest answer is I did nothing. Right. In an organization that's driven by fear, I might blame somebody else. I might make up something that sounds plausible. You know, uh, Don Wheeler, you know, uses the phrase writing fiction. We don't want to 
yeah. asked people in organizations to be writing fiction to explain something that isn't really true cause and effect analysis or even reasonable. Right. But, in, but that's exactly right. And that's what normally happens. I mean, when you have a situation like that, you have three choices. You can try to distort the system, which you've just talked about writing fiction, or you distort the data right. being a little different, or you turn and you try to say, okay, we got to figure out how to improve the system. You know, here, here's another piece of contemporary knowledge that, that backs this point up. Um, I forget what the exact number is, um, but there is a field called um, meta research where, where John Ioannidis and others at Stanford are studying scientific studies. They're studying studies right. and they found that 80 to 90% of published research claims are unreplicatable. Yes. I've heard this. Yeah. So, I mean, all that shows is that the vast majority, and we're talking 80 or 90% of what people claim as fact is really 80, 90% of published science journals in every field are fiction. And that may sound provocative. That may sound over the top, mm-hmm. but you can Google it and you can see that's the situation we're in. It literally is. It's not just a small problem where a person here or there is accidentally writing fiction. We're at a point in our use of data that 80 to 90% of published research findings are fiction. Well, I mean, I've seen in organizations where, uh, as you were describing, people are pressured to write fiction. They're pressured to distort the system. Um, where I mean, I imagine a lot of the scientific papers, it's not intentional. It, it, is, it, is it, you know, it's, uh, um, poor statistical analysis, or there, there was a phrase I wanted to ask you about, maybe pointed more towards organizations' naivete about data and drawing conclusions about data that's, that's harmful, whether it's, it's in it's this realm of science that distorts what we know versus what organizations know or what leaders know. Maybe if you elaborate yeah. on that. Yeah, I've, I've wondered that same question. If there is such a prevalence of this problem, why? What causes it? I agree with you that it's not, it's not people um, maliciously trying to write fiction. That's not the case. Um, I, so I think there's a few factors and, you know, I'd love your feedback on these, but some of the things I see is like, we've talked about this, this huge pressure, whether it's the organization or whether it's cultural or whether, whether it's just a, a personality trait to, to do something, to have an offer, to offer something in the face of this. Um, another one is just, if you think of, you know, the example of the research studies that I talked about, it's the whole system is incentivized where researchers have to publish research. If they don't publish research, they don't get funded. And so there's some structural um, socioeconomic things that reinforce that behavior. Um, I think some of it is a, is the ease of getting the data nowadays, right? I mean, here's the numbers. And I mean, here's a, here's a case where you can see it as well. I mean, the next time you turn on the radio and there's a news little blurb, if it's near the start of the month, they will report what the unemployment numbers were for the previous month. Right. And they'll say something like, um, last month's jobless claims were 
6.2%. That's four points higher than the previous month showing an increase. And you go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Yeah. Is it or is it not? And so we're flooded with this, this incorrect way. And we can get into the details of how that example is, is not the right way to look at data, but it's over and over and over again. So we're, we've been conditioned to look at data in ways that lead us to invalid conclusions. And so I think those are some of the reasons. Um, the question that then comes to my mind is, what do we do? I, how do you start to, to get ahead of that or change that? And I've thought a lot, but I don't know. What, do you, what are some of your thoughts as you're looking at this? Well, I mean, I'm, I guess one, one thing I've sort of come to believe and come to say over time, uh, you can't blame people for what they haven't been taught Maybe to some extent that's fair. Like, where, where, at what point do you have a responsibility to go and seek out knowledge and methods? But if we look at something like um, statistical process control, aka control charts, aka process behavior charts, that's not taught in most educational programs or uh, business programs. So I think you know a lot of it is you know unintentional. You know, to borrow a phrase from a book that my dad once had on a shelf when I was a kid, uh, there's widespread innumeracy as opposed to illiteracy. Yes. Um, there was a book by uh, John Allen Paulos is the, um, the author that it goes, yeah, it goes back to 1988, but um, you know, I mean, there's, so there's a difference, you know, my dad has a master's degree in statistics on top of, you know, his electrical engineering undergraduate, um, I've learned some statistics through engineering programs and business school, but a lot of it I've come to learn after the fact. Here's maybe a, a different side of it, and I want to hear your reactions. So there's people I haven't been taught statistical methods. So then they fall into the trap of the overly simplistic, you know, looking at econo- uh, economic data. Well, 6.2 is higher than 5.8. What's the controversy there, Craig? You know, yes. they're, they're not taught to look at the noise, the uh, natural variation, whatever we might call it. But yeah. then there are, you know, I think back to some of the tools that I learned in statistics classes, people in the medical profession who were taught uh, T-tests and other types of statistical methods that Don Wheeler as a PhD statistician says basically, yeah, those, those are worth studying, but they're inappropriate and not useful in the real world. Uh, yeah. The struggle of maybe having to unlearn something. So maybe, you know, it's one other um, thought before throwing it back to you, not as the defender of all things Six Sigma, <laughs> not going to put you in that position, but like when I've taught process behavior charts to people who have black belts and master black belt backgrounds, part of their challenge is sort of unlearning some of the classical statistics that's been taught and used. Um, I know I'm throwing a lot back at you in your direction, but. No, I, that, that's fine. And it, um, you know, I've come up through similar kind of channel, similar kind of background, maybe even more so with the, you know, graduate degree in engineering and the product design and the aerospace and computer science, all those kind of things. Um, I agree. There, there has to be some unlearning. I, I forget. You're going to have to maybe correct me, but one of the, it was Tichi Ono or another person when they were talking about um, pokey oak, they said it's taken them 20 years to free themselves from the chains of statistics or something like that. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know that quote. 
I'll, I'll get it to you sometime and I've probably butchered it, but it's, it's along those lines. Um, I, I think the start of correcting this is a very non-technical approach. I, control charts, SPC, they've been around for a hundred years. It's, it's an old mature technology, nothing new, um, very old compared to a lot of other approaches. Sure. But I think, I think the solution lies in things that are even simpler. Um, I jotted a few down. I think, and there, you know, when I do have a course on this same topic, um, same topic as your book, Measures yep. of Success. It's a course on Pluralsight, which is a, a large e-learning platform. It's called Truth About Data. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at, throughout that course, I give some, some guidelines to say, okay, Here's what you can do. And let me just jot a few of those down. And none of them are that technical. It's, mm-hmm. it's like um, one of them. Make sure that whenever you, when in, anytime somebody provides you data or communicates data to you, that they also communicate its context. Right. Now, there's a lot of depth to that statement. That, that On the surface, that may, may sound simple. But a quick way to do that, for example, is instead of just providing an average mm-hmm. saying, Hey, the average temperature in our city is this, it would be a time history chart or it would be a distribution or a histogram. Right. All of those are much richer, much better ways of communicating data. Now you still can provide the average. Right. If you, if, if anybody ever gives you an average without providing you the context, like a graph that for the underlying distribution you should immediately say, wait. So that's not very technical. I think that can be a huge, um, a huge advancement. Another one is anytime somebody asks, tries to make meaning out of every single point of data, mm-hmm. you have to say, hey, wait, time out. Right. Look, is that a signal or is that noise? And you don't have to have a control chart or SPC to even have that discussion. Um, a line chart goes a long way. It or does. Yeah. Or even just, hey, how much, the discussion, how much has this varied in the past? Is this out of the norm of that? But too often we we don't stop. I, uh, um, and then the, the, some of these require in today's culture, and maybe it's not today's culture, in the predominant business culture, these require some, some bravery, some courage. Because there's pressure to, to be different, right? There's pressure, to, there's pressure to conform to that because it's thought to be the right way. Yeah. When you, a lot of times when I'm in business meetings, someone will put up a time history chart and they'll show the varying data. And then they'll say, and yesterday our production volume spiked. And you go, wait, wait, wait. That doesn't look like a spike. <laughs> right. It looks like just normal variation. And so I... I've gotten in the habit of saying, wait, let's, let me make sure I understand you right. Because when, when someone says spike, that means a signal, right? Some, something important has happened. Something unusual. Yeah. Pause. They're gonna, the, the next step is to explain the spike. But I think this is where like you, you and I build intuition from having done formal SPC yeah. charts. We can sort of eyeball it or you, oh, like, yeah. you get used to knowing what that, you know, the signal yeah. beyond the three sigma limits looks like. A- absolutely. And even when it's, 
You're right. It's just being careful with our language and helping everybody be careful with their language to say, oh, something happened yesterday. Well, yeah, it's like flipping the coin. We got seven heads instead of six, but that doesn't mean anything happened. So every time there's a change in data, we can't assume, we cannot make, we can't jump to the conclusion that something significant or important or meaningful happened. That's that's the reality of the world. So those are some of the simple things. I think there's some really non-technical things that could begin to shift that. Now, will we ever abandon control charts and SBC? No, not at all. What is completely flabbergasting to me, has anybody ever said that word in one of your podcasts? Uh, maybe not, but you certainly yeah, yeah. Drawn, you've anyway. drawn me in. What's, what's flabbergasting then? What? is that all of the prominent data tools, the ones that are most widely used, fail to include the most needed and basic tools. So for example, in Microsoft Excel or in Google Sheets, probably two programs that 90% of the world have access to, they don't allow you to do a control chart. They don't even allow you to create a dot plot naturally. I mean, so there's, there's a huge disconnect here where the most important and basic tool of looking at data is absent from right. the most ridiculous tools. I mean, they, they, the, 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 the makers of the software at Microsoft could try to steer people in that direction or if there's no demand for it or people have bought Minitab or a package yeah. that, that is more exclusive and more expensive. Yeah, and that's where you find those tools, and yet they're not yeah. complicated. They're not overly technical at, at all. They're, in fact, tools that when I sometimes go to grade schools and do little workshops, these are tools that second and third graders can yeah. understand and embrace in a matter of minutes. Yeah. So let me, let me go back and react to a couple of things I jotted down notes on. So when you talk about context, um, that's great. You know, Don Wheeler, um, writes about that in his book, Understanding Variation. You know, without context, data have no meaning. Yes. Um, I like to use, I think this is, uh, you know, the, the idea of, um, imagine you're watching Sports Center and they say uh, the score of the game was San Antonio Spurs 93. Like, what? Okay, what, did they win or did they lose? I mean, it would be one simple, of exa- simple example of context being, uh, completely missing, um, you know, the, the, yeah. the single data point or two, two data points. When you were talking about averages, you know, I want to tell you a story about like one of the, I, I, I wrote a blog post about this with some collected photos. Um, I don't know if you've seen in your travels or even around town, um, hospital billboards that quote some sort of uh, digital billboard with emergency room waiting times. Oh yeah. It started about five years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I see. I see all, several of them, and and it's always uh, I, I'm flummoxed. Is that worse than being flabbergasted? Probably. I'm flummoxed by, you know, it'll say something. It'll say you know thirty, and it'll say current average waiting time. I'm like, what the heck is a current average? Like over what time frame? And or, and like it's 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 marketing. It's it's. It's, it, I don't know if the number even changes. 
well, for a minute. <laughs> well, following along those lines, there is, I, I live near a freeway and I pass by a billboard just like that every day. And I have, there's been a, 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 a billboard that's persisted there for about five years in one of the, the regional hospitals here in, in, in where I live. Um, and so I've had a chance to see that number, <laughs> you know, hundreds of times. So I actually know when there's a special cause yeah. going on at their hospital. Yeah. I can actually say, oh, well, it's, it's usually, and what was interesting is that I do laud them for making the data visible. Um, and, and because of that, it's created some good changes. When they first put the billboard up, the numbers were 40, 30. I think that it was just a real-time feed, 40, 30, um, 27, 52. Those were large numbers. And now, as I go by, it's 7, 2, 12. So there's been a marked change. Have, have they improved? This goes back to uh, Brian Joyner, I think, often gets cited uh, you know, talking about the three things that can happen when people are under pressure to improve. They can, as you mentioned earlier, they can distort the system, they can distort the data, or they can actually improve the system. I wonder how much of the distortion has taken place. Like, you know, because people are creative. Um, in, oh. in, the, in, in England, um, the, the National Health Service was, uh, you know, there are notorious case studies around the government putting limits on saying, well, no patient should wait in A&E or you know, slash ER, as we would call right. it, accident and emergency, longer than four hours. And then you start seeing the distribution and what looks like a glorious, beautiful, uh, normal distribution bell curve suddenly gets truncated. Yeah. So what's happening? Patients are being admitted unnecessarily because that stops the clock before it hit four, hits four hours or they might get discharged inappropriately, or yeah. if they've arrived in an ambulance, they're literally kept waiting outside in the ambulance because the clock doesn't start ticking yet. Exactly. Like, I'm fascinated by like these different possibilities. It could be real improvement, but maybe not. It could be. I'm, and I don't know the hospital. Yeah. Um, yeah, don't name them, please. But No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. But I've, I'll say this. I've assumed that they've done some good improvement over the years. And, um, and the thought has crossed my mind, if I got in an accident, I should go to that hospital <laughs> because it looks like there's been some improvement. Yeah. But I think of like the context, there was one example I had of a billboard that showed um, for within the same health system, the, the waiting times at two different hospitals. Mm -hmm. And so, Oh, well that one's shorter waiting time. I should go there. It's actually further away, which if you're a local, you might know that, but yeah. like the total time from where you yeah. are. Yeah. These are all those, those questions of context. And so, yeah. Yeah, these are all people are putting data out there, but is it giving valid insight? That's the that's the question. I think there's some. I'm I'm really glad you're writing about it. I'm hoping people take courses like what I've done, and I I'm glad I, you're teaching it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a leadership issue. I think I really do. I don't think this is something that starts with engineers and scientists. When eighty to ninety percent of published research findings are not replicable, not repeatable then even science education and scientists have missed something. And so I think there's a leadership, um, whether it's, you know, but I, I think we've seen this in a, in a lot of companies. Um, but, but what you bring up around, um, you know, the researchers, and it's not a lack of intelligence. It's more like there are just holes or blind spots in our professional education, right? 
Sure. Yeah, it's it's not ill intent. It is. It's it, there's some education holes, even for highly educated people. But I think there's also a cultural thing, and then I think there's a, a leadership uh, leadership element where those that could say, "Hey, wait, let's not. That's not." We need to wait or check something or look at this in a different way before we publish it. Um, that's hard to do. And that's maybe what's missing is, is that, that kind of leadership. Um, yeah. I'm embarrassing myself here a little bit. They're the, the CEO of Alcoa, Paul. Paul O'Neill. Paul O'Neill. I forgot his last name. When he was, right. That's right. Um, he, he was a great example of someone who was a courageous leader. Yeah. He, I think it's that kind of leadership where you're trying to change a culture, change all these things that, that will have more impact than perhaps the educational technical part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you some other questions about, you know, some of these um, in, in observations and insights that you have around uh, data and organizations. But one, one other thing I was going to bounce off you for your, um, reactions when you talk about you know methods don't have to be highly technical. Uh-huh. So um, in the realm of political polling, I think one good thing that I think can translate then to talking about noise and business metrics when when there's some sort of poll, candidate A is at forty six percent, candidate B is at forty three percent. Most of the time they report well. There's a margin of error plus or minus four percent. Yep. So plus or minus 4%, and there's a 4% difference in the polling. Like, we don't know who's winning right? when it really comes down to it, right? And we, we can use that same idea in business to, going back to your example earlier, if you have two data points, well, one is higher than the other. What's the controversy? It has to do with margins of error, if you will, or noise, right? Yes, it does. And I think that's, and I've noticed that as well. That's a good thing. Now, political polling is kind of in a, a, a crisis of identity right now. They they haven't been good. Their results haven't haven't. Their polls have not predicted what has happened in reality. Now, the 2016 presidential election is a great example. So they're trying to figure out that. And I think it comes back to some of the the basic things of sampling, representative samples, um, the sample sizes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not very technical, but. It doesn't have to be technical. The, the larger the sample, the greater the confidence you can have in your data. And the more the sample represents the true population you're trying to analyze, the more confidence you can have in it. And so there's, there's I know that the political polling industry is, is wrestling with some things right now because they have, they do some things right, like you're talking about. They report margins of error and things like that, but they're, at the end of the day, there's they've been they've had a hard time having their polls track what happens on election day. Well, I mean, it seems like there's an implicit like it's an assumed margin of error based on an assumption that everybody who responded to us was telling us what they really thought. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at the Brexit polling, there there is you know to to you know take it out of our American realm. Um, I think you know there, there's there were suspicions that people didn't want to admit to the pollsters that they were in favor of leaving the EU. Yeah. For whatever reason. Right. Yeah. And that may be happening. And in fact, I'm sure it's happening to some degree or another in the U S and everywhere else too. So there's, there's, 
there's some real things to wrestle with. Um, but most situations are fairly simple. Uh, marketing, uh, sale, let's, let's say sales data or sales volume or production numbers or um, quality of health care. Uh, those are those are numbers that we can track and tell. Is there something that valid? Can we make a valid analysis of those kind of data? Absolutely, we can. And the, the part we're trying to fix is that it doesn't happen as often as it should. Yeah, that, that what doesn't happen? I'm sorry. Uh, reaching a valid conclusion. No. It just looks like a conclusion, and it used data, so it must be right. Well, <laughs> actually, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you're, I mean, you're, I know in, in your, your course, um, you use different examples, if I remember right, from, from your online course. But you, but you know Dr. Deming's red bead game. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the red and white bead experiment? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm very familiar with that one. That's a staple of us yeah. Six Sigma trainers. We know that one. Yeah. But one, one point um, that I started making, and like, you know, after the third round, I fire the worst performing three out of the six, what Dr. Deming called the willing workers in the exercise. And um, like going through that exercise and finally solidified with me. And now I think I, I tried to teach it and pass it along. That decision to fire the bottom three is absolutely data driven, but it's also at the same time, absolutely unfair. Right. And it, it probably isn't, I would call it invalid, meaning it used data, but it wasn't, <laughs> right. it wasn't directed by correct insight from data. Because um, everybody's performance is within the realm of yeah. random fluctuations. Yeah. So it was data driven, but they were also randomly fired. And I think right. that, that, that's a real, I, I, I'm still noodle on that. of like, how no. can something be data driven, but be wrong? Right. And that, that is the essence of the issue that we're talking about is that all these decisions across all these companies and organizations in governments, in everywhere we're looking, those data decisions are being made. And yet more often than not, they're like the red bead experiment where yes, it was based on data, but it wasn't an in the right valid use of analysis to get to the right result. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the example from Deming that I use, uh, and that's probably the, you know, the credit to, to Deming is that he, he knew how to connect this with the real world. The, the experiment that I use often is the, the marble drop experiment where you're dropping a marble through a funnel, trying to hit a target on the floor. And what that shows is, and it's a very simple experiment. I mean, but anytime you use data, like how far you miss the target and you measure how far you are, but anytime you tamper with the system, meaning you use data invalidly, it makes the system worse. So that that's a great example of showing that, Hey, when, there's a, maybe, and, and I'm thinking this, you know, maybe this is a fresh thought that I haven't thought all the way through, but maybe part of the cause of this uh, data naivete is that um, people don't realize how harmful they're actually being. They haven't done something like the, the marble drop experiment and seen that when you tamper, when you intervene, Invalidly, you actually make things worse. You increase variation. Absolutely. In the funnel experiment. Or in some cases, depending on how you do it, you walk the data right off the pay, you get right off the target. I mean, there's any number of things that can happen. So I don't know if there's a humble, healthy respect for 
you know, I'll use a term from healthcare from for I, iatrogenics. There's not a healthy enough regard for, hey, I could be, and that seems so odd in a healthcare setting where, you know, the, the oath is do no harm. But I think our culture is do something and there's not a healthy enough respect for, or at least maybe there's a naivety about the damage I'll be doing by doing something. That, that maybe that's part of the problem. Well, pe- people want to say, well, yeah, what, what, what's the harm in reacting to the, to the data point? I'm being an action-oriented leader. And, you know, what, what's the harm? Well, the harm is, is I've, I think, you know, tried to articulate it. Is the harm is you're wasting time. The harm is you have a faulty understanding between cause and effect yes. in your business. Those seem like they can be mildly damaging or really, really harmful. Yeah. And in, in healthcare where, you know, you have a lot of experience, I think patient safety and patient, patient health and even patient mortality is affected by that. Mm-hmm. It, it's as serious as it can get um, in business and manufacturing other things. It, it causes a loss of profits or it causes a waste of material. But it, it, I think the, you know, the Hippocratic oath is, has lasted through these centuries because it is that profound and that wise. The first part should be do no harm. And it, I think that's the intent, but I think our data practices have got us away from that. Yeah. So um, this, this is, uh, I'll, I'll apologize for being pedantic of my engineer trait of like, you know, there's, you know, this detail I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up for discussion here, but uh, for the words first do no harm don't appear in the Hippocratic oath. There's, there's oh. that different, it's a different, it's a related concept, but like um, it is a, a, just a, a bit of a detour, but I, you know, John Toussaint, who is a physician and was CEO at Theta Care and has done a lot of healthcare improvement work. I, I'm passing along, you know, he, he points out as a physician, the Hippocratic oath really says first and foremost, I will honor and protect those who trained me, which yeah. is an altogether, uh, you know, uh, anyway, that's an it altogether is, um, different point than do no harm. But um, Yeah, well, I, maybe I've misquoted it. I well, no, no, I mean, no, I'm just, I, it, I think it just goes to show, that, uh, anyway, no, I'm not trying to pick on you for, it's a no. common blurring of, of, of the different medical concepts, but um, yeah. I, think I mean, I think, I think there's an analogy of like, you know, protecting, protecting those who taught us business practices instead of challenging what was done by the people before us. That, that could be tough culturally in an organization where I mean, I know you saw at Motorola at some, at what point did Six Sigma become something that could not be questioned or did it? I mean, well, I think they were still questioned. There were still some questions in the early nineties when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been away from Motorola long enough. That I don't know what the culture is now. Fair but, but you're right. I, the point you're making is, is you know, is it is that kind of questioning allowed? Um, and the best companies, the the highest performing companies, and the ones that I'm, I'm sure the healthcare systems that perform the best are able to ask that question at all levels: mm-hmm. leadership, frontline, administrative, wherever it needs to be asked. Um, back to the the topic of tampering, because I, I think you do a better job of explaining this than um, than I have in the past. Because I, 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 I've struggled to see the connections. Okay, with a physical activity like dropping a marble from a funnel and it moves, and 
the 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 over adjustment increases the variation. I've I've struggled um, to connect the dots on well, how does that apply to business metrics? Does that overreaction waste time, or does the overreacting end up increasing variation? I'm trying to remember. Did you address? I, I thought I remember you addressing that either when we talked before or in yeah. your course. Am I? It it does both. Yeah. And they're related. I don't know if they're mutually exclusive. Um, but anything that's important to a business can be measured usually, whether it's, you know, the, the, the time it takes to provide a certain kind of treatment or the cost of a treatment or the effectiveness of a treatment. And then, you know, all the equivalent things that happen in other businesses. But those can be measured. And anytime we look at data from those processes, and we use the wrong analysis approach, and then we act on it, we are undoubtedly going to be tampering, which mathematically, experientially, every way you want to describe it, when you tamper, you make the process worse. So if, if it's important to you, the, the time it takes, let's, let's go back to your A&E example from the, from the UK. If the four hour, nobody's going to wait long, the waiting time for any, if that's a critical performance measure, if, if you as a manager or as a frontline worker say, okay, I'm going to look at data and I'm just going to assume that everything I see is a special cause. I'm just going to assume that every piece of data is right. And I'm going to start making adjustments. You will make the wait times longer. And people distort the system. Right? Yeah. And that may that may distort it as wider, you know, larger spread. The average may shift, but it's going to be worse in one or more ways. And uh, it happens differently in each situation, but there's that type of behavior. People need to know that tampering always causes a worsening. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a good example that I ran into in a, when I'm working with a, a retail grocery store. Um, they had the same kind of situation where the, it was the wait lines for checkout and management saw that the wait times for checkout were increasing. And so they, they mandated to management, you need to lower those. And so the manager immediately went out and said, okay, I need to lower these. They created kiosks, checkout kiosks right. in different places. Right. Um, and wait times got longer, <laughs> but they did something. What they and then as I came into the situation, we had to kind of pull everything back and say, okay, um, what really is going on here? We looked at the data and we saw that there was no special cause. It was a common cause. All those weight lines were just common cause. And so you actually had to do something different than something like reacting like a kiosk. So we ended up doing capacity increases at peak times. We found also that some people doing the checkout didn't know how to check out certain items for sale. And so there would be all of a sudden this dead stop in the line. So adding some training so that every person doing checkout knew how to check out every item and the lines disappeared and the kiosks were mothballed. Yeah. So uh, that's another example. And we can go on literally for days talking about where, where when you jump to a conclusion and whether you're using data or not, those are mostly hampering. And when you use data correctly, the way we're talking about it in your book and in the course I have, 
that the chance of that happening goes down immensely. And so you're, no, you're not perfect, but the chance of making those tampering kind of mistakes that damage and harm and even are dangerous, it now starts to be reduced. That, that That's one thing I'm trying to help, you know, improve. I mean, I, I, I don't want this to be just some knowledge that I or you have. Right. It's got to spread. It's got to be much more widely known. So I want, I want to hear your thoughts on um, you know, how to how to address. So we we say okay, we we've got a salute. We've got solutions that we know are really helpful, and we know they're not not that complicated to learn and understand. But they are a solution to this problem, whether you call it tampering or overreacting to noise. It's a problem that people don't realize is a problem. So it's hard, I think, to say, hey, I've got a solution. And people are like, well, I don't care because that doesn't solve a problem of mine, right? I mean, yeah. made this marketing 101, how, how, how to frame the scenario that draws people in to help recognize, oh, you're right, there is a problem. I have a need that can be filled by statistical methods, whether we call it SPC or control charts or process behavior charts. Yeah, those all help. More knowledge about it and exposure. I think anybody that's been through any type of Six Sigma type training understands that need. They they may not remember which chart to use, whether it's a P chart or a X bar and R chart or what the D2 statistics for as a a subgroup size of two, but those are technicalities. But right. so that's one way to get there is just expose people so much to the tools that they begin to realize it. But I think there has to be more. I think there has to be some way. And I think this is what really your question is, is outside of exposing people to 160 hours of black belt training, <laughs> heaven forbid, what, what are some other ways to show people the need for this? Um, I, I think Deming's, Funnel drop experiment is a quicker way than 160 hours of black belt trading. Is it quick enough? I, not always. I, I've never met a group of an audience that's harder to pin down than executives and leaders and owners. Um, you really only do have, I mean, there's a, there's a reason why there's elevator pitches because yeah. you literally only get about 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, I've, I've started to become much more blunt and much more, not unprofessional. I try not to be unprofessional, not being rude. Right. But I say things like, Hey, I just heard you talking about this, this marketing data. And I asked some pointed questions like, well, how do you know that's not just noise? Like the coin flip experiment. Right. And they go, well, it might be, well, what are you going to do? And I, so I, I start to, every chance I get, I try to make leaders especially aware of the, the, the validity or the invalidity of the way they're using data. And I, and I try to do it in a um, Socratic way where I'm asking questions and leading people to those answers. Um, I don't know, Mark, what are you, what are you finding works? What? Um, the Red Beat, Deming's Red Beat Experiment. That experiential exercise I've seen time and time and again be really eye-opening where smart leaders start connecting the dots and 
recognizing that behavior with metrics that are far more meaningful than the number of red beads on a paddle. Yeah. Uh, One chief medical officer in his reflections after doing the red bead experiment said he was being blunt. Um, I think all of our quality and patient safety metrics are red beads, meaning they're just fluctuating around an average over time. And you can pretend like you did something to make it better and you can react when you think it's gotten worse but you draw, uh, draw a control chart or process behavior chart and you see nothing but noise yeah. in the metric. So that can be discouraging. That can be politically unpopular mm-hmm. within an organization when people have hung their hat on improvements, um, quote unquote, that um, they've made. So, but then part of the challenge is how to get people to the table, right? So like in that one health system in particular, they, uh, there were a couple of them in a larger group, it was a workshop run um, uh, sponsored by uh, the organization Catalysis. And one of the other executives, I think like, you know, two of the senior leaders from this one hospital system were in the class. So the one had the insight of, I think all of our safety and quality metrics are red beads. And then the other, um, you know, had, you know, the takeaway was we need to get our entire executive team and our board to get this exact same experience. Yeah. And I, pro- I talk to her probably every six to 12 months. It's been a couple of years now. Of uh, It never makes the agenda. Right. She still yeah. thinks it's a good idea, but she can't get approval. The timing's not right. And that's discouraging to her, I think, even more so than it is to me. Yeah, I agree. It, the people directly involved in it, it is. It is disheartening. Um, yeah, they're they're. I think your listeners would be good to offer some suggestions as they look at this. There has to be a way for too long. This kind of knowledge has been exclusive and whether it was in the six Sigma black belts that were doing it, or whether it's in SPC, that knowledge needs to get everywhere. And then, you know, that's, that's why we're talking. That's why you're writing. That's why I'm trying to teach. I think any way and method and shape to make it more understood and better known. I I think it does come down to experience. That's why you've seen the red bead experiment work. That's why I often bring up the coin flipping example because everybody's flipped a coin. It it just underpins what's really going on. And then connecting that to look what you're doing right now. This you're, you're, you're not looking at data validly or you're tampering or, how could you draw that? But I think there's one of the people I think that I don't know him. I'm just acquainted with his work, but um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, the author of the black swan, anti-fragile fooled by random randomness. Um, He's, he is, uh, he's blunt. He shows the, the, the problems with, you know, he, he calls it interventionism. And he talks about the problems, at, you know, in macroeconomics and in political policy and in, and in um, financial markets. These exact same things happen. Um, so, I mean, if anybody wants to, we, we have, so I, I, I believe that people like that are starting to see uh, in a very profound way the, the impact that the invalid invalid conclusions from data are having. And so I think there's a growing movement around this. There's a growing awareness around it. 
but I think I think this is something that we should engage everybody that has any insight on it. I'm I'm not at a loss, but I would love to have more to to be able to offer. Yeah. So um well yeah, I, I appreciate what you are offering and you're trying to influence people and, and educate people. Um, so thank you uh, for that, Craig. Um, if, 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 as we wrap up, if people want to find you, A, to have, you know, to, to answer some of your questions or have a conversation or to learn more about um, your online course and other offerings, how, how can best people best find you online or reach out to you? Well, it, if you're looking for my data course, just go to pluralsite.com and search, search their courses for truth. The course name is Truth About Data. It'll come right up, right at the top of the list. Yeah. Um, and they have a free trial period. It's a shorter course, uh, about an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, it has the conceptual side and the, the, the philosophical side, but it also gets into creating your first process control charts, things like that. So I, I think it's a, a great start into it. So if you're trying to get a hold of that information, that's the best place. Um, to get a hold of me, my LinkedIn page is a very good source. It kind of shows what I've done in the past, where I'm trying to go. Some of my cutting edge stuff, that in the, especially in the management consulting with owners and leaders, I do through my consulting company called Strategic Productivity and a website by that same name, strategicproductivity.com. Um, I think data is one of about four things that that the typical MBA training conventions get wrong about 180 degrees wrong. Yeah. It has to do with, you know, which values do you prioritize um, data? Like we've talked about um, the selection of which metrics to use. And then another one that is right at the heart of lean and six Sigma is how do you manage um, improvement, learning and change the, the idea of Kaizen has kind of gotten lost. Um, it's become a, a large, discrete event. Yeah. Um, and anything we can do to, to add organic, self-directed improvement can surpass what's done in a command and control setting. So take a look at strategicproductivity.com for some of those other things. Um, that's where you can find out about me, but... I'm glad to have this conversation with you. It's always fun to talk. We have a lot of uh, good things to talk about and um, hope to be here again. Yeah. Well, maybe we, we can talk about the Kaizen thing and that's a whole different episode, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Kaizen is. is not just events, right? Uh, <laughs> not by any means. Yeah. Um, well, I, again, thank um, our, our guest, uh, Craig Giggy. If you're going to look for him on, on LinkedIn or want, you can go to the show notes the, the webpage for this episode, or if you're going to search LinkedIn, it's G-Y-G-I. Yep. Giggy. So um, you should be able to find them real easily on LinkedIn. And and Craig, I'm glad that we've um, gotten connected and uh, we've been able to talk. And I really want to thank you for being here uh, in the podcast. It's been really, uh, really interesting conversation. So I appreciate that. Thanks, Mark. I agree. It's really fun. Good to have a talk. Yeah, thanks. You bet. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.